No, go on, son. Well, it's true I'm enough. interested it's, in all it's this. It's true enough that, uh, that, uh, <laughs> that at this point in our history, there is a distinct conflict between those who feel that uh, we should use the machines and those who feel that we should evade them, you know, that we should eliminate them in our own private lives. And I think that that's, uh, <laughs> I think that it's an irreconcilable not, situation. Not, not, I don't I want to eliminate them. No, I really don't want to, all I'm talking about, and this is the thing that, I, uh, that used to worry me so much at Yale, Phil, yeah. was in studying labor economics, which is I've, I've gone into a lot of factories, a lot, 10 or 12, right? And every one that I've been in, right, the means of production, the way things are produced, just the whole atmosphere is one of hell. So that, like, for example, I was talking with Ty Diani today and said, wouldn't it be wonderful if everybody could just, if they wanted to, like, have fancy clothes, paint their clothes the way she's painting them. No mm -hmm. factories, no no department stores, no people going to work, no matter if it's ah, called well. the all-humanist department right. he store. He has a very interesting make, point in here. Now, wait a minute, David. There's, there's okay. that whole point in here about the clothes, because remember, he says <clears throat> yeah, that, right. that what is different about the way young people wear clothes today and the way that corporate people wear clothes is very simple. Corporate people still all wear uniforms. They wear suits that are pressed and make them look the same. The only thing that you talk to with a corporate person is his face and his mind. The rest of his body is a machine. It's just, it's hidden and it looks the same as every other body. Uh, the young people buy mass-produced clothing, see, but the mass-produced clothing is, is something which they then paint, add doodads to, or combine in various ways that expresses their own individual personality. And furthermore, he says, that the costume of the, of the young person, as it was first expressed in this country, is essentially like what Phil is wearing now, the skirt and the, oh no, I'm sorry, uh, no, no. something like blue jeans or bell bottoms and a work shirt and maybe a dungaree jacket, which right is worn on, all Daddy the up. time for everything that you do. Right, you I can, sleep in them. You can sleep in them, you can roll in them, you can walk, roll? you can eat in them, you know, and, and it also can forms to your body so that you become, your clothes become you and you become of your clothes. Yes. The difference being that there's nothing wrong with the mass-produced clothes per se. It's how we use them and the kind of choices that we make in wearing them. The and we don't have to wear different clothes to work in than we live in, you see? It's like the guy on television who's who the disc jockey that we all love so much sitting there in a suit. Well, you know that one of the joys and advantages of being a disc jockey is that you can sit there in a sports shirt or and no pants if you feel like it, but not according to the Columbia School of Broadcasting. You have to look like a machine, you see? And so there's a lie right there. Yeah. But it's done because he's presented on TV again, right? Right. And over and over and over again. And these are all lies that are becoming increasingly absurd to, to people who, who live differently, right? What, Phil? Well, if we'd had it together, Earl and I would have performed for you our famous Columbia School of oh, Broadcasting oh, shtick. But I'll bet you you didn't bring the record, right? No, we still uh, we need a cartridge machine. Well, look, let's take advantage of this and say that by the time we... That we'll build up to the famous Columbia School of Broadcasting <laughs> routine sometime in this series of programs. And now back to our discussion featuring Philip Punter, Doctor of uh, Economology at the University of the New Yorker, <laughs> and his speech uh, given before the, the meetings of, of uh, old, old guys on the radio. Pete? We should not forget that we are a country in which more than half the population is under 25. Most powers is in the hand of people over 25, but how long can them holding it retains it? <clears throat> the persons in the revolutionary movement may grow uh, tired, <laughs> but time and the force of the machine <clears throat> are on their side. Could somebody get this machine off my side? <laughs> and for those who's adopting the new values, there is a discovery that there are really no enemies. 
Nobody wants or needs poverty, inadequate housing, and medical care or war. There are no people who do not, in the depths of their beings, want the same thing that Consciousness 3 wants. What? What? There is no need, then, for any groups in America to fight any other, for they are all fellow sufferers. Businessmen, policemen, construction workers. There is no need even to fight the machine, for technology can be made the servant of man when consciousness creates a new society. Below, German children learning to swim were crippled before birth when their mothers during pregnancy used the tranquilizer Contergan containing thalidomide. Above, a session of the trial against seven top executives <coughs> of Kemi Grunenthal, the producer of Contergan. Pier 10 in Brooklyn enjoyed an impromptu circus today, but it was a little overbalanced on the side of aerial acts. But that was not surprising, because most of the actors were birds or monkeys. Fish ridicules Canadian Canal. I never worried a bit. If Tony missed with the tranquilizer, (laughs) I could always shoot him with the camera. Uh, record? It's not on the script. We, we're deviating from this, so we have to... Oh, come on. Now, where's my microphone? Oh, yeah, I don't... It's in the other room in the closet. Want me to go get it? Go to the record. What record? Go to record. Record. Right before Ponder's Girl. Oh, we already did that. All right, let's do the Orson Welles record, then. Why aren't these... There we go. This is halftime, right, ladies and gentlemen? Halftime, Orson. That's right. Half-assed. Right. What? Beg your pardon? Please, do the Orson You asked for it. Well, <laughs> well, should we go on? Sure, why I not? I mean, look, this look, I've got something interesting here. Look, just like real life. The Lord God planted a garden east Who's of the at a place called Yorhalinda. Oh, I thought it was God. And a child, Richard, there grew to manhood. He was righteous, and he took to wife the damsel Pat. And she was righteous, and they were righteous together. For they knew not wine nor strong drink, and their status was middle, middle, and they offended not, and the number of their cavities were fewer, and they suffered not irregularity, for they were chosen among all men. And one day a deep sleep fell upon Richard, and there appeared an angel of the Lord, which said unto him, Fear not, O Richard, for yea, though thy beard be black, and thy jowls pendulous, thou art comely, and glory shall one day be thine. Whence came it that young Richard was filled with the Holy Spirit of ambition, for he was a low potential high achiever, and he tried harder than he might be number one. And the elders asked, Who shall be our champion, that we may be saved from the scourge of the new dealers? And they read a classified ad upon the tablet saying, Wanted, future pharaoh, pigmentation must not be unseemly, neither shall he partake of the feast of unleavened bread for they were not equal opportunity employers. Whence came young Richard, and he says, Yea, verily, I shall sweep the liberals before me and sting the Democrats with a swarm of wasps. And they found his words gracious and sent him to the wicked city of Washington. Now it came to pass that Ike ruled over the land, and he summoned young Richard unto him, saying, Art thou clean as a hound's tooth? 
And Richard went before the media and cried, I am clean, I am innocent, and my wife weareth a Republican cloth coat. Wherefore did Richard sit at Ike's right hand? And it was a time of peace. And the time that Ike ruled over the land was eight years, and he grew old, wherefore he chose Nixon to reign in his stead, saying, kings are not always wise, sometimes they're just there. And Nixon journeyed unto the land of the Latins, but they liked him not and spat upon him. And he journeyed to the land of the false prophet Marx, and he went into their kitchens and spat in their borscht. And when he returned, the people muttered, Is he not overmuch righteous? And there rose up against him a young prophet, John, the tribe of Joseph, a man of many talents, and a leader of a mighty clan. And he took Nixon by his beard and broadcast him down. And Richard's heart grew sad, and he walked through the valley of the shadow of the losers. Whence did he hie back unto California, where he strove to be chief? But he was beaten. And when the scribes came unto him, he said, Yea, I asked for votes, and you gave me the shaft. Woe unto ye, for ye shall not have Nixon to smite around any more. And Richard departed alone, and the liberals laughed and mocked him. And he got no heat, and he died. And he was four years dead. The whole thing. Oh, okay. That might be it, of course. That is it, I think. Well, that is it. <coughs> yes. yes, indeed. Yeah.